This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Imagine you're at your high school reunion. It's been about 15 years since you last saw your peers from school. A former classmate of yours comes up and says, Wow, you're a professor at a university now? That's fantastic. You've really come a long way since your high school years. Your teacher chimes in too. Yes, you've changed a lot. I'm so proud of you. You flash an awkward smile, but internally wonder, what does that mean? What was wrong with me back in the day? Was I that different? Did I really change? This is what many would call a lack of self-awareness. But what exactly is self-awareness? And how does one become more self-aware? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Dr. Eugene T, Associate Professor in Psychology. Welcome to the show, Dr. Eugene. How are you? Very well, Dashran. Always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Um, so let's start with the basics, um, Dr. Eugene. What exactly is self-awareness from a psychological perspective? Always with a tough question. Self-awareness <laughs> is the ability to anticipate how others see you. Um, and it also is the ability to know how your actions may be uh, seen uh, in the eyes of others. So if we break it down a little bit, Dashran, um, it comprises right this ability, recognizing your own internal state. And I think uh, this is the aspect that most people would be you know, intuitively familiar with the recognition of your personality, your, your strengths and deficits, your values, I would think uh, that shapes a lot of the actions that you do, uh, right down to your moods, your emotions, uh, your interests and your skill. But I think we need to also expand on that definition by recognizing that self-awareness uh, also involves that recognition of how you impact those around you. So in a nutshell, it's the ability to see yourself clearly, objectively, and accurately. Um, and to do so, I would imagine, uh, from a, um, and so a third person perspective, right? So if you view yourself as an actor in the environment that you're in, um, recognizing how that person also shapes the context or the environment that uh, they're in. Would you say that self-awareness and self-consciousness is the same thing? Oh, the terms are used uh, differently. Right. So uh, if we think about self-awareness, it was, uh, I think that's going to be more in line with the definition I provided. But mm -hmm. self-consciousness is the, uh, I, I, I think that's a little bit more related to a slight discomfort. It seems a little bit more related to emotions in a sense, right? So when you say right. that someone is really self-conscious about it, uh, then what follows would necessarily uh, be emotions such as uh, embarrassment. Uh, I'm thinking of the spotlight effect as well, right. right? So I'm reminded of a study in which, Dashran, you might know, right? You walk into a Christmas party with a hand-woven sweater, right? <laughs> Well-meaning, well-intended from your grandmother, but it draws a lot of attention to you. So right. you feel self-conscious as a result, right? So I would use the term self-awareness and differentiate that from self-consciousness uh, using that example. Why do you think it's important, Eugene, to be self-aware? Considerable research, right, uh, psychological research in this case, Darshan, tells us that a high level of self-awareness, uh, you know, being clear about who you are and, and you know, that is also going to shape how your understanding of how you're going to make the best use of yourself to attain what you wish to accomplish. So in short, if I were to simplify that, um, it, I would say that self-awareness is important because it makes clear who you are and how much you have an influence on those around you, your environments, your your interactions with others. And, and really having this kind of self-awareness then facilitates the attainment of goals, your goal attainment. Um, I would think self 
awareness builds a kind of practical intelligence. You are aware of yourself. And we know in psychology, there's a lot of, you know, this this interaction between yourself and the environment around you. We are we are far away, right, from, from this entire nature-nurture debate, right? So if you bring that into the context of self-awareness, it's a recognition of how you interact with, how you shape the environment and how in turn the environment, your interactions shape you. Uh, so I, I would think of it as beneficial for cultivating what I would call um, a form of practical intelligence, contextual right. intelligence. So really recognizing how your actions shape, influence those around you and how in turn that environment shapes you as a consequence. And you brought up about how self-awareness you know, can help you on your journey towards achieving your goals. I'm wondering mm. if self-awareness can lead to um, higher levels of happiness and life satisfaction. We all want that. So certainly the evidence that if, you know, uh, we, we understand that self-awareness leads to goal attainment, then if those are your goals, I have no reason to, you know, expect why it wouldn't lead you to high levels of engagement, satisfaction and happiness. Um, but I suppose, Dashwan, uh, a good way to think about this, right, mm-hmm. as, a, as a point of conversation between you and I is to think about what's going to happen if someone does not have self-awareness, right? So to look at the flip side of the situation. Right. You know, I've just been recently watching reruns of of The Office, right? So I'm going to use examples from pop culture here. So the um, the sort of abrasive, low self-awareness, confrontational, inappropriate, obnoxious, uh, my way or the highway boss, right? Right. That holds to the belief that his employees respect him when in truth they they really are contemptuous or, or detest him, right? So that's an example of low self-awareness and we know that that leads to poorer outcomes at least in the workplace context um but i also want to bring to maybe your attention and mm-hmm. as a point of discussion uh what happens when you know you you might have someone maybe yourself okay. um, a talented office wallflower and that others speak highly of right? right and they, they say that oh she's indispensable she she's great right but she's crippled with low self-confidence people don't tell her enough that she's you know, she brings a lot uh, to the table in her professional role. So both really are examples of, you know, uh, self-awareness lacking, uh, the boss lacking in his actions, uh, while the office worker, the talented wallflower, lacking in awareness of how others view her, even if that may be uh, positive. Right. So uh, I'm just going to summarize here by saying that in a nutshell, that lack of self-awareness can limit opportunities for success. Uh, it can be a detriment to the formation of healthy, sustaining, beneficial relationships. And I think it's a message that I'll, again, just try to summarize by saying that the promise of self-awareness is essentially that if if you know who you are better, then you can create a path and the opportunities towards becoming the person you, you then wish to be. I want to um, dig a little deeper into one of the examples you just gave about the the worker in the office, the office wallflower. I'm wondering if a lack of self-awareness can also contribute um, into, in some cases, to people having imposter syndrome, where they genuinely believe that, you know, they are not good enough, um, where, you know, oh, during appraisal time, I'm definitely going to get fired. I did all sorts of mistakes and and so on and so forth. But then when they go for the appraisal, the is like, you're one of the best uh, mm-hmm. employees mm-hmm. we have we have had over the past year. You're so good. Oh, yeah. you, you've achieved so much. Um, I, I'm wondering if, if a lack of self-awareness could lead to those kinds of um, situations. Great point, Ashwin. And 
I think, you know, this leads on quite nicely to this idea of that being the right way or the wrong way mm. of self-reflecting. So um, I would say that the term imposter syndrome, I would I would say that it's more of an imposterism or imposter phenomenon. Right. The assumption that you're well and truly out of your league in that mm. situation. Yep. Right. And, and so, yes, certainly there, there is a possibility off the top of my head. I can I can see the connections that between a lack of self-awareness or the improper uh, approaches to introspection, which we'll I'm sure we'll discuss in a, in a short while, how that can also lead to individuals fixating or ruminating on the negatives, not paying proper attention towards the positive aspects of their contributions, their skills. They're widely, clearly, explicitly observed by others around them, but not by the individuals themselves. Um, I, again, I, I think this conversation just sort of leads on to a next point, isn't it? That perhaps in certain cultures or contexts, that idea of humility and modesty mm-hmm. uh, is valued. And so people don't see it to be the norm to express the strengths, their merits for right. fear of being you know, seen as boastful or arrogant or drawing much too much attention to themselves. Uh, I think this is a little bit more apparent in a, a harmony prioritizing collectivist culture and context like ours. I'm wondering if self-awareness um, or, or lack thereof can impact our relationship with others. Certainly, one of the key references that I've looked into uh, is Tasha Eric's insight. Mm-hmm. And so it's an excellent book of saying, you know, uh, how people most of the time assume that they are self-aware, but in fact that they are not. And if we go back to the initial definition, Dashran, that it's not just an awareness of yourself. And even so, when we try to self-reflect on our own, we don't do it well most right. of the time. Right, uh, but we are also not entirely cognizant of how we might come across in the eyes or in the views of others, the perception that others hold toward us. Um, I, I think just just to your question to answer that, right? If you are not aware of how you come across to others, I'm thinking again, pop culture reference, Michael Scott from The Office, mm-hmm. right? Gosh, that that is gonna create animosity, <laughs> friction, and resentment. Right. Okay, so we we probably all had a boss like Michael Scott at one point right. in time, but. Yeah, so that's a classic example, or at least a pop culture example, and that's certainly borne out by the um, the evidence in psychological research. It can influence your relationships with others, and sometimes we're just too kind to want to call other individuals <laughs> their faults, right? Definitely, Eugene. Why do some people lack self awareness? Why why do people fail to know our own self? It seems like that's the most basic thing, right? Um, You know, before you get to know other people, you should know yourself first. So why do so many of us lack that self-awareness? Interesting question, Nashan, if I could just be a little bit cheeky here and just (laughs) say, I think it's more often the case that most people think they are self-aware. Right. Okay, okay, if I could use a metaphor here, I'm getting excited talking about this. Um, I'm suddenly reminded of you know, how even some of the most skilled drivers will have a blind spot when they're trying to park a car right. in reverse and when they do so manually. This is, of course, assuming the time before reverse cameras and sensors, right, right. we find in, 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 in the more modern vehicles. So an interesting point, if I can just bring this up from uh, Tasha Urich's book, mm-hmm. Insight, uh, she claims that just 15% of us are truly self-aware. 15, one five, right? Not wow. So it's a sobering statistic, but I think it's even more interesting if you consider how 95% of us claim that we are self-aware. And right. even worse, even worse, 80% of us lie to ourselves, that we are lying to ourselves. No, <laughs> that can be right, right? So, so we engage in what um, the, the evolutionary 
biologist Robert Tribus calls self-deception, and it's a it's it's a very um, you know um, slightly worrying claim, right? But I think we all do this, whether we realize it or not. Or, or not, we we lie to ourselves, Dashan, so that we can better lie to right. others. Right. So, so that's the concept of self-deception, and it's an evolutionary quirk that we have in 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 the ways of you know rationalizing who we are uh, and 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 lowering dissonance, so that we can better present ourselves in in the eyes of others. Right. So I, I thought that was you know one of those mind blowing yes. moments when you come across right. And, um, and what does that yeah. mean actually? When you say we are lying to ourselves, are we? When we say we are lying to ourselves, are we? you know, convincing ourselves that we are better equipped to handle certain situations or or we are convincing ourselves that we are better singers than we actually are or, or better <laughs> athletes than we actually are. So glossing over rationalizing, mm-hmm. I, I would say that encompasses a wide spectrum of different, you know, post hoc rationalization justifications right. that we are better, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's a, it comes from a place where we, we might feel that slight discomfort at acknowledging the 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 cold and unkind truth about the lack of our abilities or the deficiencies is it so I say no no that can't be right the system is rigged I I'm I'm the one being the victim here right the system works against me so many reasons to actually lie to ourselves to save us the discomfort of you know honestly recognizing that maybe we're not quite as self-aware maybe we're not quite as competent or maybe we're not quite just as good or as a kind or as a a good individual as we would like ourselves to be as we would like to think crucially right. ourselves to be right so i think that goes to the root of um what we're looking at here in terms of self-deception a sort of protective almost but necessary mechanism if you don't want to be you know stuck in a in a, a self-critical ruminative rut all the time right so what i'm getting at is right that mm-hmm. self-deception part would go towards more of a lack of self-awareness towards negative qualities um, mm-hmm. you may think that you're so good at something but in reality you're, you're not quite and, and you're lying to yourself about certain things mm-hmm. like you said um, mm-hmm. but on the flip side what would contribute to a lack of self-awareness about positive qualities i, I think you're spot on in that because that seems much more to be the default mm-hmm. isn't it so that that lack of self awareness is, you know, uh, is going to lead to um, if we if we don't engage in that self reflection, not uh, you know proper introspection well enough, that certainly can lead to, you know, um, high levels of stress, depression, less control over our lives. Um, and and here I would think it it would be useful to bring in a similar line of work, and this is from the psychologist uh, Ethan Cross on mental chatter. Right. right. So the voices in our head, you're not good enough. You speak too quickly. You think anyone actually listens to your podcasts mm. on the bigger picture? I'm sorry, I'm not referring to you, Dash. I'm referring to me. Sure, right? sure. Right? No, no, really, really. No. So, oh my gosh, what is it? Am I, what am I doing? Right. So, so mental chatter would essentially be the voices in your head. Right. And uh, they, they have a remarkable um, evolutionary benefit. Mm-hmm. Because if you think about it, our ancestors would certainly benefit from having those voices tell us, um, you know, where where our next meal is coming from, where the next predators are coming from, and and so that primes us and preps us in preparation for, you know, impending threats. But but you would know, right, that we have a negativity bias, Dashwin. So right. being safe than sorry is not the same as being precise and positive. And so a more direct answer to your question is that yes we have the chatter 
It primes us for threats. It gets us to be ready to think on our feet as and when the situation arises, but it can also cripple our sense of, well, our self-worth, our self-esteem. So the crippling inner voices in our heads, right? It turns this remarkable capacity for reflection and introspection into something more akin to a curse. Mm. Uh, an unhelpful, inaccurate, ruminative cycle that rather than acknowledge and, and brings to the attention our strengths, uh, just amplifies our our limitations and weaknesses. So in short, we don't self-reflect well if we you know, give in, succumb to a mental chatter. This is going to cause us to overlook our strengths and lead to poorer psychological outcomes. On the show with me today is Dr. Eugene T, Associate Professor in Psychology. After the break, I ask him about the negative impact of being too self-aware. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan. And on the show with me today is Dr. Eugene T, Associate Professor in Psychology. And we're talking about self-awareness. So Eugene, I'm wondering if there is a connection between self-awareness and self-esteem or mm-hmm. that it is better, uh, you know, that, that one's self-esteem could increase or, or, you know, one could be more self-confident if mm-hmm. one is more self-aware. Honestly, Dash, I had to look this one up because I... I hardly see the research linking right. self-awareness and self-esteem but but when I did I'm happy to share with you intriguingly as well although the link is an intuitive one you would mm-hmm. think that if I'm more self-aware therefore I would have higher self-esteem but interestingly what limited studies have been done has showed us that at best right you would find mixed or non-significant results right. meaning that Look, most of the time, there there isn't a constant connection between these two concepts. So I, I'll just give you a few. I've just made a few notes here. I can just tell you that, you know, most of the studies are done with a focus on adolescent and youth populations mm-hmm. because that's where the formation of self-esteem is, is a crucial developmental factor in this particular population. But you either find mixed or insufficiently replicated findings. So for me, that's just you know, um, geeks speak for saying that there isn't strong, solid right. relationship between the two, okay. right? Uh, if anything, if anything, I'll add here that if you increase self-awareness, right, sometimes it does increase negative moods as well because that brings to attention, right? The, the negatives, the deficits, right? Uh, and so um, as far as I can tell from the literature and back to your point earlier, it's not so much just a direct link, mm-hmm. higher self-awareness means you know, higher self-esteem, but it is in how how individuals engage in the self-reflection en route to enhancing their self-awareness that leads to gains either in the terms of their self-concept, in their self-esteem, their self-efficacy, or or otherwise. I want to dive into the um, negative impacts of too much self-awareness in just a second. Be- but before mm-hmm. that, um, I came across this social psychologist from Princeton University um, mm-hmm. called Emily Pronin, um, and mm-hmm. she coined a term called the introspection illusion, which I found very interesting. Basically, the mm-hmm. idea that we don't really know ourselves as well as we think we do. So I, this ties into, at least from my understanding, towards this topic that we're talking about, self-awareness. Um, could you explain this one for me a little bit more? and how, if it does, tie into self-awareness? It was fascinating. So uh, Emily Pronin defines the introspective illusion Mm -hmm. 
it's a uh, it's a cognitive bias okay right, and it's it's this tendency for us to show a persistent and common widespread tendency to value right our own introspection our own thoughts our own reflections that is the path to self you know self understanding so right. the assumption here and the bias right is that we know ourselves well and so when we reflect upon ourselves right we are the best judge right but incidentally i'll extend on that by saying we are the best judge jury and executioner of ourselves <laughs> as well so we assume that because we have ready access to the necessary thoughts experiences i mean we are the primary actors in our own lives right mm -hmm. by which to understand ourselves so therefore we make the assumption that our self-reflection our introspection is valued or we give it a far greater weight than what others would otherwise give us and, and crucially um you know what happens then is that we assume that others right or others don't reflect quite as well as we do their own introspection is not right. quite as accurate as, as us it's less valid right less reliable so simply put we we assume right that we know ourselves better than others know themselves or that others know us um, and, and so, like I said, this gives us a strong weight, you know, placing that weight of importance uh, on, on our own judgments of ourselves. Uh, there, there's been a bit of um, work in that area that also tells us that when we do so, we judge others more harshly as, as, a, as a result of this bias. It's not just about you, isn't it? It's also about how others, right, the other actors in your environment, how they see you and how they perceive and evaluate your actions and what you do in your environments basically basically we overvalue how much we think we know about ourselves and we discount how well others view us and how others view themselves right and i just thought of a the most random example you know while you were um you know breaking breaking it down for me right this introspective illusion i'm wondering if this is where or this is why some people perhaps run into a little bit of trouble um, when they take personality tests, right? And I think a mm -hmm. lot of people, when they take personality tests, the, the problem you run into is that how much are you actually telling the truth about yourselves mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. much you're ticking boxes um, based on how you assume or the, the sort of image you wish to project right. um, to other people and you're ticking boxes uh, like that. Um, mm -hmm. am, am I on to something here in terms of trying to understand what you just said? You are, Dashran. That is a classic uh, issue when it comes to psychological testing. Mm. It's the desirability bias. So right. they would, uh, you know, if, if you were to fall prey, I think a lot of us fall prey to mm -hmm. the bias, isn't it? And so um, I, I won't go into the details, but with the questionnaires that are developed, they've validated psychometric tests. There are a few countermeasures, if you will, um, to 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 mitigate this hmm. problem. And it's firstly, you know, phrase the questions in a more neutral term, not so that you know uh, it biases people to answer one way or the other. There are also the inclusion of what we call testing or checking questions to make sure that oh look, if someone says this, I never lie at all. For instance, off the top of my head. I've never lied ever before, right? <laughs> I, I I think it would be very difficult, right, right. for you, even, even the most the, the most saint-like amongst us, to say that. Yeah, I've absolutely ever never white, black, gray, whatever colored lies, right? <laughs> never told that before. So those are testing questions that will catch individuals out, and uh, that would give us reason to suspect, you know, some kind of uh, response bias in, in the test. So I, I think self-reports more generally in psychology run into this problem because people want to present themselves. Right. right? So even in, say, tests of emotional intelligence, no one likes to be thought of 
as emotionally unintelligent. Right. What, you call me stupid about my intelligence, <laughs> about my emotions, right? But you know, the, the, the strange you know, paradox to it all is, I'm suddenly reminded of a study that tells us that people who claim themselves to be emotionally intelligent are not emotionally intelligent. Right. <laughs> so, so, you know, maybe that gives us some ideas on how we should structure questionnaires, right? And, and again, to your point, I, I think um, as the, um, you know, the advances in measurement uh, progresses in psychology, we are looking to rely less on self-reports because like you've correctly pointed out, those are subject to response biases on part of the people who take those tests. Absolutely. Now, going to the negative consequences, right? Largely, um, you know, when we think of self-awareness, it's a positive thing. You should be more Mm. self-aware. You should know yourself better and, and so on and so forth. But I'm wondering if there are negative consequences to having too much self-awareness. And this is uh, where we're creeping into the sort of the boundaries almost of uh, what we do know and certainly what I would know about right. self-awareness. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this by saying that I suspect there would be mm-hmm. right excesses of self-awareness, but under the condition that you do it wrong, right? So if you fall prey or succumb to the introspection illusion like we've talked about just, just briefly, or if you're unaware of your own cognitive biases, right? right? Um, other people are biased, but I'm not biased. That's also a um, that's also a form of bias. Uh, we've talked briefly about the introspection illusion. We've talked briefly about chatter as well. So I'd say that engaging in introspection and self-reflection, but you know, not doing that correctly, not doing that impartially, only hearing the negatives, discounting what others think or perceive on the impressions that they hold in their minds about you, uh, those can be lopsided one-sided, however you want to describe that, and that's not going to be an accurate reflection. So in a nutshell, relying excessively on your own introspection uh, at the expense of others, that is possibly detrimental to your overall well-being. Absolutely. Um, I'm also, you know, just to get a better understanding of that, I'm wondering if it could lead people, that being too self-aware could lead some people to be too much in our own heads, um, thinking and mm-hmm. analysing our flaws. I think this goes back to, you know, the heightened uh, understanding of our own negatives and, you know, and just analysing our flaws and, and, and rather than saying, hey, you right. know, these tiny flaws are just who I am as a person and it's okay. I, you know, I don't have to work on every single, you know, small mm-hmm. thing to get me into this perfect person. I, I'm wondering if these are some of the pitfalls of being too self-aware? Possibly, possibly. Mm. I don't know any evidence that links to that though, Darshan, mm. but uh, just to build on the point where we talk about chatter and mental chatter just a right. while ago. Right. Uh, and and we also have good evidence from, from psychology about ruminative thoughts. So I think rumination is quite possibly um, the, the technical term for what many of our listeners might uh, describe as overthinking, right. over- yes. overanalyzing. So right. we're talking about, say, paralysis by analysis only. But but there is a limit. If you do understand that there is a limit to how much the mind can exert itself in an attempt to understand itself, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So we need other minds. We are geared to, we are evolutionary shaped to also understand and comprehend, to take in what other minds think about us, right? We have theory of mind. We use that to understand what other people are thinking, right? So in the same way, I think the reverse would hold true as well, that we need to balance that out, Right this self-reflection, this introspection with an understanding that others too 
have impressions that they form in their minds about us. And I think we strike that balance in between, you know, self and other, internal and external. Then I think we come to a better situation where we're not caught up in the rut and the storm of our own thoughts, which can be, uh, like we discussed, right, and from many evidence from chatter, crippling, and um, you know that that leads to just poorer well-being outcomes as a result. How can individuals increase their self-awareness when they, f- when many of us find it difficult to mm-hmm. identify our own thoughts and emotions? I'm glad you asked this question, Dashran, because as with a lot of our conversations, we have a practical takeaways, and I right. certainly hope that yourself, the listeners. Uh, would would try out these suggestions. These are based on good evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I might share this first tip. We'll start with an easy one. Uh, share this first tip with you uh, as, I, as I've done so in a previous conversation, Dashran. So I hope it's okay to just share it again. Yes. Uh, not only because I found a ton of evidence for its usefulness, but I would attest personally to its value for my own growth and development. So when you're talking about thoughts and emotions, you would want to give them shape and form. And so journaling helps immensely. It's a little difficult, if not impossible, to make sense of your thoughts, your emotions, fleeting feeling states when they're running amok or floating about in your head, right? So bring them out, put them on a piece of paper. It doesn't have to be a physical paper. It could be a Microsoft Word document, right? Track those transient emotions and moods. And what you're essentially doing when you're putting to pen and paper your emotions is you're making them tangible. You're also engaging in a process called reappraisal. So when you write your emotion stories, right? Reappraisal sounds like a technical term, but essentially it means interpreting, taking a step back, viewing your experiences from a more impartial third person perspective. And I suspect, right, as we're talking about uh, reappraisal, writing about your emotions, you can also try, right, if the voices in your head, you find them to be crippling, to practice a neat little psychological skill called self-distancing. Example, you've been been going on this for a good 15, 20 minutes now, Eugene. You speak too fast. Dashan is bored of you, (laughs) right? But wait, Eugene, you see Dashan smiling now. Surely he can't be all that bored. Right. Plus, plus, if you remember, he's invited you to speak on this topic again since you told him you were busy the last time. This was maybe about two weeks ago when you were doing your your master's, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So that seems to suggest that, you know, I think Dashran still is interested to hear your thoughts. So this challenges your assumption that you're boring and no one wants to listen to you. So Dashran, I'm going to speak to you now as right. a person. Notice what I did there. Right. I placed the distance between myself and my thoughts. I spoke to myself as a third person. I referred to myself in that voice, right? In a third person voice. So the studies tell us that this simple act of, you know, um, speaking to us as a third person, this self-distancing can help us be a lot more objective, right? Right. We are our own most supportive friends. And we know that this is an effective countermeasure because by default, we are our own worst enemies. Right, so we speak ourselves in a third-person voice, and the research tells us that you know doing so can place that healthy distance between yourself. I would also implore you and our listeners to do so with the positives. Right, so like I did from that example, that I see Dashan wants to listen to you. 
Right. You're not all that boring, right? You may be boring your lectures, but maybe not in this radio interview, <laughs> right? So, of course, of course, um, you know, just to summarize that, in addition to self-distancing, you can be on th your own third person. But, of course, actually having that actual third person, this, um, you know, other friend, a mentor, a coach, trusted colleague, cherished friend to relay that feedback, that's also an effective way to help you cultivate a balanced approach uh, to self-awareness. So hence, another suggestion, right? Metaphorically speaking, have this other person hold the mirror up to you, right? because the mirrors that we're holding up to ourselves may not necessarily be the most accurate or reflective ones of who we truly are. Eugene, when reading about this topic, right, in numerous articles, I've come, I came across the the word mindfulness, mm -hmm. right? It's many many articles suggested that uh, mindfulness to improve self awareness. How does mind, mindfulness help with self awareness? Right. So on the note of on mindfulness, mindfulness is in in my view at its at its core attention training. And many times, if you've practiced right. uh, mindfulness before, they'll ask you to draw attention to, say, your breath, it might ask you to anchor your thoughts on another individual. Uh, but I'm going to suggest because we've talked so much about the the fixation almost or the bias towards the negative, uh, that mindfulness can also be directed towards our strengths and our plus mm. points. So bringing to your attention, hey, here's what I did well, Right. Um, and, and, and certainly there are certifications and practice uh, on something called mindfulness based strengths practice. Right. So rather than anchor oneself on the in the moment, say, uh, physical sensations, in this case, our breath, we're also drawing attention to, hey, spotting your strengths. Right. To identifying at this point, Ashran, you come across to me as charming. Eugene continuously talks to you because he's got so much to say and you're a great <laughs> host. Right. So bring that to the fore to reflect upon right. and to fixate for a change on the positives rather than on the negatives on which we are a lot more accustomed and um, we, we instinctually do, so to speak. And before we wrap this conversation up, Eugene, would you have some final thoughts or a final message on self-awareness? You're not as self-aware as you think yourself to be. Don't worry. No one is. So hopefully the suggestions that I've um, shared with you all here uh, helps you on your way towards a more balanced and accurate and, and more well-being and enhancing form of self-awareness. Thank you so much for joining me today, Eugene. Thank you so much, Dashman. Pleasure as always. That was Dr. Eugene T, Associate Professor in Psychology. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We are available on the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Today I Learned Podcasts. I'm Dashman Johan, and this has been Today I Learned BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.